Hi, everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for joining me for episode number two of the Meaning of Everything podcast. Now, the way that this podcast, videocast, normally works is that I will have on guests uh, or we'll be talking about specific content related, you know, we'll be talking about the stuff, the meaty stuff, the good stuff. In the first few episodes, however, uh, if you listen to episode one, you know this already. In the first few episodes, I want to be talking about this podcast, this uh, series that we're doing, uh, what I'm trying to do, how it all works. And so that way you can always refer back if you want to, you know, whatever you want to get a good idea of, of what is being offered or why I'm doing it or who I am. Uh, that's all here in the first few episodes. So episode one, I talked all about me, which was very fun for me, probably uh, very not for you. And then uh, here in the second episode, I want to talk about why I believe this podcast is important, what, you know, what we're trying to achieve here. And then in the third installment of this, uh, in the following episode, I will talk about what, uh, what the podcast is going to be like specifically, logistically, what I can offer you, um, that sort of thing. So without further ado here, episode two, I want to talk about our climate, what's going on in the world today. And I'm going to break it down into two different pieces. I'm going to talk about the intellectual climate and I'm going to talk about the emotional existential climate, what have you. Um, both of these things are in some senses fine, great, and in other senses in like really dire situations that we need to address immediately. Uh, I, think, I think it's important. So first, uh, the intellectual climate, I do not know where to start because it's so messed up. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to let this podcast be explicit, so I'm going to refrain from, hopefully you'll understand what words I meant to say. I'll refrain from saying the, the, the four letters. Our world is really, uh, our intellectual climate is messed up. First and foremost, one of the most problematic things about our intellectual climate is that we don't do a lot of listening. I think that's a problem. And I mean like a lot of learning and a lot of listening. I think a lot of people are trying to talk about things that they don't understand. And I'm certainly included in that group, although I make a sincere effort to learn and understand as much as I can. But a really big problem is that people have ideological agendas, right? They're trying to push a specific set of ideas. And again, I know that I'm one of them in some way, but, uh, but often when people are loyal to an idea, A, they get better publicity, and B, they're really not all that open-minded about what else could be going on. And uh, yeah, this is, this is a problem. You know, it, I see the same thing in my work in the, you know, health and mental wellness space. People who like give you a specific answer or a specific solution or want to tell you, you know, that X number of calories a day or X number of whatever is going to fix all your problems, they're easily marketable. They're going to be able to 
sell you a lot of books very quickly. And so they're very popular. And we see the same thing in intellectual circles. People who have sort of more simplistic viewpoints get a lot of airtime. Uh, they do a lot of shouting. Contention is really popular. People like to shout at one another. Uh, and that's, that's really a problem. Uh, and I will not refrain from identifying those kinds of things when I when I see them and they're everywhere. I could, you know, list some people, but they're, they're everywhere. Some are a little bit better at listening than others. Uh, but generally speaking, I think having ideological agendas is, uh, is a problem. You know, having a really hard line political loyalties, not being able to understand other viewpoints and where people are coming from is deeply problematic because A, you're never going to be able to connect. B, you're never going to change anybody's mind, including your own. Um, and see we're, we're not going to like be able to peacefully move forward as a species. So this is all really problematic and something that I would like to uh, work to change and will participate in a lot of like really good thinking and feeling about, you know, who we are and what it is that we're doing here on this planet. That's one thing about the intellectual climate. Another thing about our intellectual climate is uh, there are... <laughs> People like to be, there are a lot of people masquerading as philosophers, and this drives me crazy. I'll go ahead and call out one person in particular, Sam Harris. Um, the reason Sam Harris pisses me off so much is that he has stated explicitly that he hates philosophy and the humanities, right? Hates uh, the whatever. In the footnotes, of uh, one of his books, I believe it is The End of Faith, the first one. Um, he says that philosophy is just really boring and he doesn't like it. And you find this attitude everywhere. So he's just an example, but this attitude is everywhere. You know, people who are really into the sciences, for example. And then on his website, he calls himself a philosopher and I can't, I can't, I can't, I'll say it, I can't even, you know. Um, he calls himself a philosopher. And, and the reason people do this is because they think that when you like think about stuff or talk about stuff and then write about stuff, you get to call yourself a philosopher and that's just not true. Philosophy is an ancient tradition. It's an academic discipline. And I will not call myself an expert. And I very much hesitate to call myself a philosopher. Sometimes I will use the word because it's uh, expedient or good for marketing in a particular context, but I will always feel uneasy about it and try to avoid it because A, I think that's a cultural signifier that we should earn uh, as individuals, but B, I am, I try really hard, but the field of philosophy is just so rich with skills and ideas and histories and nuances and uh, to consider yourself an expert in it is just, it's mind boggling to me. I bring this up. This is important because philosophy is where we can find some of our best ideas in history and some of our best feelings and some of our best expressions and where we can see how our species, how our cultures have evolved over time in terms of how we think and feel and make sense of ourselves in the world. Philosophy and religion are, is where we see this happening. And so it's a deeply valuable resource and something that we need to appreciate, which brings me to another piece of the intellectual climate that is deeply problematic, which is the division between the sciences and the humanities. Now, I think that I can play a 
I do play already in academia, an important role. There are many people here, but not nearly as many as there need to be. Many people who see the value of the sciences and see the value of the humanities and want to bring them together and have them working together. And I will have many people on this show who are at various places in this spectrum and who are working hard to uh, rectify this divide. Right, so I, as I mentioned in uh, episode one, I have training in the sciences. My undergraduate degree was in the sciences. I worked in a laboratory uh, studying asteroids and uh, the origins of life, life on Mars. Uh, I understand the sciences and I love them deeply. I have always had a deeply emotional relationship with the sciences. I have a tattoo of some stars. I have a deeply emotional relationship with the, with the sciences and I love them. And the humanities, I also see their value. The sciences are really good for collecting data, empirical data, repeatable data. That's it, period. That's what the sciences do. And there was a lot of baggage, a lot of uh, you know, cultural stuff, a lot of tradition and history and psychology wrapped up in the sciences. But that's specifically what science does, is it collects data. The humanities are reflective. The humanities talk about experience. The humanities often tie this together, tie the sciences together, help it all make sense. And it was in the humanities that we first realized in the history of science when Thomas Kuhn in, in 1962 wrote the landmark book about how the sciences are always evolving in the standard of truth. We never arrive at a true truth. We have paradigms and they shift, right? We have ideas and uh, coherent theories that make sense, but they don't quite make sense. And then we shift to a new paradigm. And it is with the humanities that we are able to do responsible and thoughtful science and reflect on the data that we get from science. And science can provide data that the humanities can use. And the humanities can take what it knows about human experience, about history, about the quality of life, and, and use that data, critique it, uh, lend some ideas back and forth about uh, social construction, about uh, how societies function and all that sort of stuff. It can be a very, it should be a very integrated universe, but it is not. It is decidedly not. You will very rarely find an academic or a public academic who is willing to see how these two disciplines can, how these two worlds can intersect. I can. And I think that that's deeply, deeply important for understanding who we are as a species. You know, evolutionary psychology, for example, a lot of interesting ideas it has about like the origin of certain psychological concepts, but without the humanities, it was absolutely blind. People were taking, still are today, taking ideas that they have about our culture or things that we do and finding what we call just so stories, like finding reasons for them to have been a part of our evolutionary history. People in humanities were like, no way. These are parts of our culture. They're not endemic. They're not uh, internal or necessary to who we are as a species. And that was a hugely important critique that came from the humanities. And the humanities can also uh, really participate in teaching us about um, gene and culture, co-evolution, gene and culture interactions, trying to figure out like what makes us who we are in terms of nature 
and, and culture and how do these two things interact. And that is a deeply, perhaps the most important task that we have for ourselves as a species, I think, because we need to understand who we are in order to help ourselves be, again, the best possible versions of ourselves individually and as societies in order to create systems and methods for us to be the best versions of ourselves. Like we need to understand who we are and how we become who we are. And for that, we really do need both, uh, both the sciences and the humanities. And so I will hopefully help us understand these things in this podcast. So those are some things about the intellectual climate. There are more, but those are some of the most important things. And I will hopefully uh, be able to remediate some of them simply with the way that I ask questions, the guests that I have, um, and will be able to come to solutions that are somewhat unique. Uh, I do have somewhat unique theories that will come out over time uh, about what it means to be religious, about what it, science is, about uh, what it means to be a human being, about what it means to be saved, about how our nature, our biology, and our culture interact. These are some of the things that I work on. And so uh, that, will, that will be a piece of what we do here and hopefully uh, learn a little bit about. So the uh, part two of this uh, mini podcast is about our intellectual, sorry, our emotional, existential, spiritual, religious climate. Um, a note on terminology. Religion is a heavily laden word. I will have a guest on very soon in the first few guests uh, where we talk about how problematic it is, the word, the category religion. And, uh, and then uh, spiritual, I really, I, I dislike a lot for, it has negative connotations in our culture for reasons. Um, <laughs> but uh, it also, it partitions, it takes a realm of our lives and sort of separates it from the rest and you have to elect it. You know, people always say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And some people say, well, I'm not spiritual. And that's fine. But that's not my favorite way to talk about who we are and how we feel and how we make sense of things in our existence. I prefer the word existential. And yes, I do. I happen to be an existentialist. It was an accident. I didn't know until I was almost 30 that I had been an existentialist my whole life. Um, I was reading Heidegger and I thought, well, crap, it turns out I've always, you know, I believe what Heidegger believes um, in terms of his metaphysics anyway. I have my whole life and I didn't know it. So yes, I am an existentialist, uh, but I use the word existential to mean like us and our bodies and how we like cope with what it means to be human. So uh, our emotional existential climate, it's a mess, but there is hope. I don't have time here to talk about the history of the human race and specifically of the West. I will a little bit, uh, but we are in an incredibly unique situation emotionally and existentially compared to any other human society that has ever lived. I'm working on a book currently tentatively titled The Age of Ambiguity. And in this book, I argue that although we have more knowledge than ever before, because we do, we actually have more uncertainty and specifically an existential 
kind of uncertainty and uncertainty about the things that matter most. What does it mean to be good? Is there a God? Is there a soul? Who am I? What am I doing here? How do I make sense of my life? We have more uncertainty in this way than, than ever, than ever before. And it's multiplying and it's deeply problematic, deeply painful. And we don't, we don't know it consciously, but imagine this. So ancient humans making sense of things lived in one tribe one you know they had themselves and they occasionally encountered others but when they did they just either a thought they had different gods or b maybe thought they were heathens but they still had their own systems and before writing was invented because we need to be very aware I know this sounds silly, like something that I should be teaching people we need to be aware of. Like there's so much we need to be aware of. Why do we need to be aware of this? But we do. We need to be aware of the intense impact that writing as a technology has had on our culture. The ability to write things down is an enormous game changer in the history of humanity, perhaps the biggest. One of the implications of this is that the types of intelligence that we valued changed completely. Before writing, before we could write things down, before we didn't need our memories, the types of things that we thought about that we wanted to be able to do was our memory. We wanted to be able to remember things. People in ancient history valued retention. They valued quality memorization techniques, quality narratives. Uh, These were the types of things that helped them hold on to knowledge. They were holding on to knowledge. And nowadays, what we do is we deconstruct knowledge. We tear it apart. We don't care about memorizing at all. Nobody does it in schools anymore. And we encourage people to be able to take ideas apart and construct new solutions, play with them. They don't have to remember anything. So this was one huge change that happened compared to our ancestral history, compared to who we used to be. And that that really set the stage for us to sit with questions in a way that we never did before. And then this huge history evolved with the development of philosophy. And then the printing press was invented and it spread, you know, writing spread. And then it was available to everybody and not just a select few. And then the sciences developed slowly and science became this method where our traditional ways of understanding things with narrative and uh, just telling stories and seeing things and making sense of them in the way that we knew how, which is by telling stories, you know, guessing that there were gods or spirits behind things because how else do you explain something? Like how, you know, how could people have known? Um, These ways became replaced with data in a sense, or they had to learn how to coexist alongside them. And thus a rivalry between religion and science, religion quotes and science quotes was born. And the sciences progressively, and the humanities, as people did biblical criticism and learned how to deconstruct these stories that they were reading, over time, these traditional ways of knowing and making sense of things faded and were replaced with data, you know, nothing that was emotionally fulfilling. Uh, There's a philosopher nowadays, she's in her 90s, her name is Mary Migley. And she, the phrase she uses for one thing that happened is God surgery. And many people have talked about this in many different ways, but we cut as a Western society, God out from our frameworks of how we make sense of things. 
And then everything had frayed ends. Everything was hooked to God, meaning, value, purpose, solace, everything. We cut God out of it. We cut a lot of things out of it. You know, the sciences have continued. Their uh, science is forcing us to question whether we have free will. It's forcing us to question whether we have souls, whether we are complete selves, whether there's any kind of life after death. Science is really radically challenging the types of certainty that humans used to just carry with them naturally. And now we, we don't know what. And we also live in a globalized world, you know, with thousands and thousands of different kinds of religion. And we're bumping up against them every day. And we have no, we no longer have the comfort of thinking that we are the only belief system, the only right belief system. And there's so much knowledge, millions of journal articles published every year. And there's no way we can swallow it all, right? And it's overwhelming. And how do we make sense of it? How do we choose which faith? And how do we know what to do? And now we have so many options, right? In our globalizing world with all this technology, so many options and they're all changing very rapidly. So we find ourselves in this incredibly unique existential situation that no human society has been in before. And what do we do about it? You know, like we have these questions and they're kind, they're kind of new. Like we've been asking them since Plato and before, you know, but they're, they've sort of snowballed. They're tumbling into each other. They're colliding with other questions and other cultures and the sciences. And, and, and what do we do? How do we make sense of it? Who are we? You know, we desperately need to be able to make sense of these things because this kind of uncertainty, like it has been demonstrated thoroughly that humans do not enjoy uncertainty. We run away from it. Whenever we experience it, we're, we start to desperately seek certainty. And we see this everywhere. We're seeing it in the world in politics right now. The uncertainty that we're experiencing is frightening and people are clinging to their safe havens and we become defensive, right? And maybe we don't know how to cope with it. And so we channel our energies into our egos and our Instagram accounts, right? We don't want to look at it. You know, we also like all of these questions are deeply important and can feel really good. And we can experience things that are sacred and fulfilling, but we don't look because it's hard and it's scary. And so we just, we ignore it. We shut off the deepest and most important parts of ourselves because we're already hurting, but we don't know why. But I do. I do know why. I think I know why. And I know a lot of people who are exploring why. And we can solve these problems. We can start to work through why we feel the way that we do, why we're in pain, why we're suffering, why we have this, you know, existential despair and why we, why we behave the way we behave. You know, it's on such a meta level. It's a lot of the things I talk about with our existence and our being and our metaphysics and what have you, but it's also a deeply important part of our lived experience, a part of our sadness and our anger and our anxiety and our experiences of loss. And then the flip side are the moments in which we get to experience joy and happiness and um, solace and comfort and contentedness, which is vanishingly rare. So that's the emotional climate we're in today and, and what, I, what, I, what I think we can do about it. Um, if you have any questions, do feel free to drop them on uh, Facebook or Insta or what have you. Uh, send me an email. Uh, I, we, we will be talking about these things at great length for years.
Um, and hopefully, again, like we will be talking about big ideas, but in a very practical, emotionally, socially important ways. So uh, stay tuned in episode three in the next, uh, the final installment of these mini introductory episodes. I will talk more about the kinds of you know topics that we'll have on the podcast, specifically what I want to offer. Uh, and then we'll get going with um, our really exciting queue of guests. So uh, thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you next time. Take care.